0: Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Welcome to May! (laughs) It is gloomy, it is rainy, maybe spring will finally come, we'll find out together, but I'm excited you're here. Uh, It's going to be a great day. Uh, my name's Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are with us for the first time, we are kicking off a new series. so You came at the right time. We are kicking off a series that we are calling The Politics of Jesus. The Politics of Jesus. Uh, if you've been rolling with us in 2019, you notice that we have been focusing on Jesus. We've been focusing this year on this guy. Hopefully churches are always focusing on him, uh, but we've been sort of looking at more concrete examples. So uh, we started with the way of Jesus, where we looked at the spiritual practices that Jesus engaged in that connected him with God. Um, and then this la- we just uh, concluded the jamboree. And the jamboree was sort of building a case for this guy named Jesus of Nazareth, considering all the data around this historical figure, asking, okay, that being the case, what does this mean? And now we want to move today into Jesus' politics. Jesus' politics. This is a series I've been thinking about for a while. And as I was thinking about how to kick it off, where do we begin? Uh, I was, you know, there's just so much, right? Like, I mean, where, when you're looking at the intersection of faith and politics, there is so much uh, history. And I realize that there is no sufficient way that I can begin this series short of like, teaching a class on the intersection of faith and politics, which maybe that would be interesting for you, and maybe I'll do it at some point. Um, So instead of going back and situating the context, we're going to go forward. Oh, there's some light right there. Man, Uh, we're going to go forward. This is going to be a series of construction. We are going to construct a politics of Jesus. And as we step into certain conversations, if we need to deconstruct in some places, we will. All right? And I realize, when starting off, that a lot of us in here, we're confused about the relationship of politics and faith. We're really confused. We're kind of in a cultural quagmire. And there may be no more confusing statement than the the phrase, some, some iteration of the phrase, we need to separate church and state, right? We need to keep faith and politics separate, keep religion and politics separate. And I understand the sentiment behind it, but the first thing I want to do as we step into this series is explain why that is impossible. (laughs) It is impossible to keep religion and politics separate. Here's why. Uh, Let's define some terms. Let's start with good old Aristotle, right? And his work, Politics. This is how he defines what politics is. He says every state is a community of some kind, and every community is established with a view to some good. For mankind always acts in order to obtain that which they think good. Every state is a community of some kind and every community has a a view of some good and we act and we organize in such a way to obtain that good. That is politics. It names a shared vision of how a people organizes itself, right? A shared vision of what a people values, of what a community pursues, what they care about, how they function and operate, how a group of people live their lives with each other. So politics, at its basis, is concerned with how we live. How we live. All right, well, what about religion? From the anthropologist Clifford Gertz, he writes, religion is a system of symbols, and practices which acts to establish powerful, pervasive, and long-lasting moods and motivations in men and women by formulating conceptions of a general order of existence. That's super abstract, I know, all right? Basically, religion are the symbols and the narratives that create practices for a community and that establishes in the community powerful and pervasive motivations for how we decide to organize ourselves. So if politics is dealing with how we live, religion at its core is dealing with why we live, right? Why we live. So both of these are answering the why and the how. Politics focuses on the how, but if you sort of peel back the layers implicit in it, you can find the why. So if you ask America, why do we choose democracy instead of monarchy, right? If you peel back our stories, our symbols, we have a narrative for why that's the case. But religion, even though it focuses on the why, also if you follow the logic, it will lead you to how you do it. And we have talked about this in the way of Jesus, right? We talked about... Uh, Jesus, he gives us the story of Jesus and his grace for us is a beautiful story and it's why God loves us. But then that should transform us to live a certain way. Well, then how should we do this? And I wanna start this way to make the point that politics and religion are two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. They're both dealing with why, We organize ourselves a certain way and then how we do it. And even if, in places like America, in American politics, even if we were to say, all right, let's expunge any conversation of the afterlife or any conversation of God or gods or any conversation of of supernaturalism, expunge all of that from from, from our politics, what we still fail to realize is that our narratives, we are still a religious nation. We have narratives that form us, like Washington crossing the Delaware, like Lincoln giving the Gettysburg Address. These are super impactful narratives that form us and and give us the motivations for why we are a democracy, why we pursue freedom. We also have symbols that organize us, like that bull on Wall Street that shows his butt to everyone, right? That's not neutral, that's a symbol. We take pictures. It represents something we believe in, a free market, like the American flag. That's a symbol, a religious symbol that represents something we believe in and how we organize ourselves. And I want to start that way because I want to make the point that politics and religion deal with the why and how of living, which means politics and religion at their core are all about love. It's all about love. Because love names those people or things or narratives or symbols that you're willing to sacrifice your one life for. We're all religious in some way. We're all political in some way. You might not think of yourself as political, you might not think of yourself as religious, you're both of those things. You have a reason, a why for your life, and you have a how for your life. You have a religion and a politics. We're taking it all the way back to our boy, David Foster Wallace at the very beginning, the first sermon of 2019, everybody worships. Everybody worships. The only choice you get is what to worship and what you worship determines what you love and what you love determines how you live. So you might be in this room and you're like, well, I'm I'm not a Christian, I'm not a follower of Jesus but I care about America. Great, the state is your God. Or you're like, well, I don't care about America, but I care about my family and, and our, our generational prosperity. Great, your family is your God. Or you're like, well, I don't care about family, but I care about my company's success. Your company is your God. Or I care about my own individual career. You are your God. We all have a God. We all have a, the Greek word, a telos, a goal, an end that we are organizing our lives toward. There is no such, a, there's no such thing as separating um, religion and politics. There's no such thing as separating church and state. Every one of us, every one of us has a why and a how because it's all organized around what we love. So when we're talking about the politics of Jesus, we're answering the question, what does Jesus love? What does he love? We're answering why he loves Jesus something, why he loves uh, um, a certain narrative, and then therefore how he goes about loving what he loves. And I just want to say at the start, as we jump into this series over the next uh, couple weeks, this is going to provoke embarrassment in all of us, because what we're going to realize is that we're hypocrites. Oh, I know, I know. I've already been realizing that as I've been preparing. I'm a hypocrite because I do not love what Jesus loves. Amazingly, what I've also discovered is my failure to love what Jesus loves does not inhibit his love for me. It's still just as steadfast and just as faithful. And I want you to know that. As we examine these questions of what does Jesus love, what are his politics, and we realize how we fall short, amazingly, his love for you has never wavered in the slightest. we got to talk about it. We have to talk about it because where there is embarrassment and where there is a falling short, then we are not organizing our lives. We're not following Jesus completely. And our lives and our love depends on it. So we have to talk about racism. We have to talk about how structures are racist. And the politics of Jesus doesn't allow for racist structures. We got to talk about it. We got to talk about how hypersexualized and individualistic our culture is, and how that hypersexualized individualism is leading us to a slow isolation and death. We have to talk about it. We got to talk about greed. We have to talk about both legal and illegal. We got to talk about it because it's numbing us from seeing our neighbors. It's numbing us from me being able to see you fully and to love you. We have to talk about our vacuous current language around that word, love. I don't think our society understands love at all right now. I think what love has become in our current society is sort of this idea of um, I don't want you to tell me what to do and you don't want me to tell you what to do. So neither of us are going to tell each other what to do or challenge one another and therefore we're going to sort of Affirm firm and cheerlead each other, even if it means my cheerleading you is you walking off a cliff. That's what it means right now. And also, we gotta talk about love is not the other end that wholesale condemns people for how they live. That's not love either. But we gotta talk about what this is. We have to. We have to. Our following Jesus, or at least our seeing and understanding who this Jesus is and what his politics is, it depends on it. And something I realized from the outset as I considered politics, and specifically the politics of our country, of America, and the politics of Jesus from the start. Our country has a politics of results. A politics of results. We tell you what's expected, and then we try to get there. But the politics of Jesus is a politics of relationships, which means it starts slow and it's transformative work with God with others, with systems and structures. Politics of results is a politics of the law. Here are the Ten Commandments, you follow them, give us the results. Politics of Jesus is about transforming you into a different type of person, transforming me into a different type of person. And so today what I want to do is set the context for this conversation. As we begin to construct what Jesus' politics are, what he loves and how he lives, I want to set the context for this conversation so that as we go forward, it all makes sense, or at least we know the perspective we're having the conversation from. And so the title of today's message is From Jeroboam to Jubilee, From Jeroboam to Jubilee. I'm going to explain, if you don't know those words, I'm going to explain them both. All right. I probably should pray here, even though I know we're like 20 minutes in or something. This feels like a good place to pray. Will you join me in prayer? Um, Lord, we, uh, for those of us in this room who have encountered your love and surrendered our hearts to you and said that you have the words of life, we can't go anywhere else. Give us courage to do the hard work of introspection. Give us courage to see where we are not following you completely. And to know that you do not condemn us, you love us, you've chosen us, you invite us further into the story. And for those in this room who would not call themselves a follower of you, I pray that their eyes would be open to at least see who you are and the kingdom you're bringing, what you're about, so that they would know that they were created with a purpose by you, they were loved by you, and that you were for them. So open our ears and our hearts to receive your message today. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, from Jeroboam to Jubilee. I've received a lot of emails from people over the last couple years. Um, some people in this room, others who are outside the Hope Brooklyn community, and a lot of questions that, that, that go along the, the lines of this, something like this. They'll, they'll ask about political positions or current events, and they'll ask, where does Hope Brooklyn stand in relation to it? For example, like something will happen in America, and someone will email me and say, what does Hope Brooklyn think about this? Or, or a policy will be passed, or a candidate will be elected, and they'll say, how does Hope Brooklyn fall in relation? And I understand the question, I really do. But often I find myself uncomfortable with it, not wanting to answer. And it's not because I don't have a response or at least a way to think about the question. The reason I feel uncomfortable and I don't want to answer is because the perspective from which the question comes is wrong. And I want to talk today about why that's the case. I want to orient our view on politics and Jesus so we can faithfully step into conversations. And so we're gonna start by reading a passage from 1 Kings, which deals with um, the people of Israel and the Old Testament, and this guy named Jeroboam. Will you say Jeroboam? Jeroboam. Jeroboam. Let's talk about Jeroboam. 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 through 33. We're gonna have it on the screens or pull it up on your smartphones, your Bibles, whatever you got. Uh, it might sound, if you're unfamiliar with uh, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, it might sound super weird. Don't worry, I'm gonna explain it. All right. So we read, then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves and he said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. And Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel also, he installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Y'all got that? Y'all got the sin of Jeroboam? We good? Yeah. A little history. And again, I can't provide it all, but here's the short of it. God chose the people of Israel. They were given a way of life, a way to live. They lived the best they could, but often they did not do a good job. Fast forward a couple hundred years. The people of Israel said, we want a, a king to rule over us, like all the other nations. God never wanted Israel to be a monarchy because they were more like a theocracy. God was their ruler. Their relationship with God formed them into a certain type of people, but they wanted a king. So God's like, all right, I'll make a concession. He appoints Saul to be king over Israel. And then Saul dies, and then he appoints David to be king over Israel. And David has a son, Solomon, and Solomon is king over the people of Israel. And in David and Solomon's time, Israel is like one of the premier powers of the ancient world. They are in their heyday. But then Solomon dies and something happens. Um, Again, it's a lot to go into, but the short of it is Rehoboam, who you heard of in this passage, he tries to lead, but Israel ends up splitting. And we have a little slide, a little map. Boom, there it is. Israel splits. And for the first time, the people of Israel are not a united people, they are divided. There's a kingdom in the north, which confusingly is called Israel. And there's a kingdom in the south, which they call Judah. And for anyone who doesn't know, the, the whole people of Israel, not the, just the north, but the whole people of Israel are made up of 12 tribes. One of those tribes is Judah. So when the kingdom splits into two kingdoms, 10 tribes become the kingdom of the north and two tribes become the kingdom of the south. This feels like Game of Thrones right now, doesn't it? Yeah. Two tribes become the kingdom of the south in Judah. Rehoboam is the king of the south, and Jeroboam becomes the king of the north, the first king of the northern kingdom. Y'all following me? All right, good. So here's what's interesting. Again, all of Israel, let's keep that up for a minute. All of the people of Israel, they are given sacrifices and rituals and festivals that they engage in, that teach them to to worship God, to worship Yahweh, to be God's people. But a lot of those things happen in one special city. Can you guess which city it is? Jerusalem. There you go, you got it. It happens in Jerusalem. That's the holy city. There's one problem. Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Judah. So Jeroboam knows that if he wants his people to remain faithful and practice the rituals and all the the sacrifices, in order for them to do that, they're gonna have to travel into the southern kingdom. Now, it's easy when we look at that passage to think, oh, they built golden calves. That's the sin of Jeroboam, but it's not. It's much, much deeper than that. And I think we find the sin of Jeroboam when we look at this one phrase, which says what Jeroboam was thinking. And he says, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. So Jeroboam institutes these practices, these sites of worship, but they are not aimed... At helping his people love Yahweh better. They are aimed at preserving his political power in the northern kingdom. So, at its basis, the sin of Jeroboam is this when God is used as a means to a political end, when God is used as a means to a political end. Jacques Ellul, in a phenomenal book called The Politics of God and the Politics of Man, this is how he writes it. He says, the sin of Jeroboam was precisely that he made theological and religious decisions regarding the true God for political reasons. Thus subordinating the spiritual life of the people. Thus subordinating helping the people love God better to political necessity orienting its worship not to another god, but according to the demands of politics, seizing control of the revelation of God. What we have here is not an idolatrous state, but a political power which creates a state religion, which uses the truth of God and the work of God for its own political ends. It subordinates the will of God, not to its own will, but to the greater the good of the nation or state. It integrates God's work into the imperative of a realistic policy. This is why questions that are framed as what is the church's stance on candidate X or how does the church feel about policy Y, that's why they make me uncomfortable. It's not because followers of Jesus don't have a preference in these questions. We do. It's, they make me uncomfortable because the questions assume that the church's primary role is on improving the American state. The questions assume that God, his people, the church, followers of Jesus, that we are just a means to a greater political end, that being America's well-being. But if that is how the church is viewed, then we are nothing more than a voting block in American politics. And when evangelicals are spoken of as a voting block in American politics, that is the sin of Jeroboam. Let me be clear. I want to be abundantly clear. Followers of Jesus care about America. That's where we live right now, so that's why I'm using that as our example. We care about lots of places. Followers of Jesus care about America, but we do not care about America so as, not fundamentally, to save America. We care about America because we love and worship Jesus. And Jesus is teaching us to care about the governing structures that we exist in and about the people we live among. We do care about what happens to America, but not for the same reasons that America cares about what happens to America. So the sin of Jeroboam is when Jerry Falwell says Donald Trump is evangelicals' dream president. Whether he's right or wrong, it doesn't matter. God has become a means to what he believes to be a greater end, which is a certain vision of American politics. The sin of Jeroboam is when people say, if you were a Christian, you'd care about policy X being passed you may be absolutely right. It's still the sin of Jeroboam because God has been subordinated to another political end. I do care about housing discrimination. I do care about racism and its effects. I care about finances and how money is allocated. I care about abortion and the death penalty and who gets a say over life and death. I care about sexuality and how we view it. I care about crime and incarceration and how we view those who commit crimes. I care about immigration and how foreigners are treated. But I care about all of these things, not because, firstly, I care about what happens to America. I care about all of these things because I am a worshiper of Jesus, and he cares about them. So I must care about them if I am going to see him better, going to worship him more truthfully, and be transformed into his image to help usher in the kingdom of God. That's why I care. If America is saved in the process, great, that's a wonderful byproduct. But that's not primarily why I care about these things. Which brings me to a word or a phrase that I've always been uncomfortable with, even though I use it sometimes, and even though we've used it before. Uh, And that's the phrase social justice. Social justice. We even at first, when we were trying to develop our justice ministry at Hope Brooklyn, we called it that. And then we dropped the social and went with just justice. But I think what made me so uncomfortable about that phrase is the qualifier, social. Why do we call it social justice? And I realized as I was studying and reading, and obviously Stanley Hauerwas helped me out with this, we call it social justice because social justice is set over and against private justice. It separates how we live in public from how we live in private As if there's a distinction between how we treat the immigrant and how we treat our spouse. There's not in God's eyes. As if there's a distinction between how corporate money is spent and how you spend your money. There's not in God's eyes. I don't like that phrase, social justice, because that is premised on the project of liberalism in the West, which is this. You want to know what the project of the West is? We want to create a just society without creating just people. We want to create a moral society, a moral public forum, without creating moral people. Do whatever you want in private. And it cannot be. It cannot be. That public-private dichotomy is completely non-existent to God. You can't be one way in private and another way in public. There is no social justice. There's just justice. And that's private, and that manifests itself in the public realm as well. It's just justice. I'm tired of America setting the, conversation, the terms of our conversations. I'm tired of being viewed as a voting block in American politics. We are doing so much more than that. And if you think that all we're doing here is preparing us to be better citizens of an American kingdom, you're mistaken, and I failed you. That's not what we're doing. We are doing so much more. America will not outlast the church. The church will outlast America. America will only last insofar as citizens of America come to see themselves, not as Americans, but as worshipers of Jesus. And I just want to be clear here. I am so grateful for what this country aspires to be. I really am. I realize, though, they've had mixed motives, as every um, nation state has had mixed motives, that they have aspired to something that they believed in. And I'm grateful that I get to talk like this on a Sunday morning. But I wanna be clear that my primary allegiance is to Jesus and to the kingdom he's establishing. And I work to that end. So if the sin of Jeroboam is making God a means to another political end, well, what is the right way for us to view politics? How do we view justice? How does Jesus view his politics? How does Jesus view justice? What he loves? What does Jesus love? What is he about? And I want to read a passage from Luke chapter four. And in Luke's account of Jesus's life, this is the first thing Jesus does that kicks off his ministry. So he talks about his birth in chapter one and two, and then he's baptized by John the Baptist. And he's tempted by in the desert, and then Jesus comes back and he's ready to begin his ministry. He's ready to start healing and teaching and and doing all that stuff that he does which makes him so loved and so feared. And this is how he kicks it off, all right? Luke chapter four. He went to Nazareth, we read, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, In the ancient world, that would be a total mic drop moment. (laughs) Jesus just dropped the mic, and he's like, let's go, let's go. Now, you may not know this, but that passage that Jesus quotes, Isaiah, deals with a concept in Israel's history called jubilee, in the year of Jubilee. Jubilee is this, at its simplest. Jubilee was a practice in ancient Israel where every 50th year, that is seven cycles of seven years, every 50th year on the day of atonement, and this is important, the day of atonement was once a year when the high priest offered a sacrifice and atoned for all the wrongdoing of all of Israel. So on a single moment, all of our spiritual debts, everything that we had done wrong and everything we had accumulated over that last year uh, in terms of what we owed God, ways that we had not lived um, in a way that loved God, it was all canceled in a single moment on the day of atonement. And that happened every year. But every 50th year, they went a step further. On the day of atonement, they announced the year of jubilee. And here's what the year of Jubilee meant. The year of Jubilee signaled the canceling of all debts, economic debts that is, the canceling of all debts and the resetting of all structures of power that had built up in Israel over the last 50 years. Here's what this means practically. Any land that had been sold over the last 50 years was returned to the original family who sold it. Any people, Israelites, who had fallen into poverty over the last 50 years and had become indentured servants, they were immediately emancipated and given back their family land. Crimes that had been committed over the last 50 years were pardoned. In the blink of an eye, friends, Everything was reset. Everything was erased and the game started over. On the day of atonement, God canceled all of Israel's spiritual debts toward him. And then in the year of Jubilee, all of Israel's debts toward one another, economic, social, political, were also canceled and reset in the blink of an eye. And Jesus says, today, This has been fulfilled in your hearing. If you want to know what Jesus' politics are, Jesus' politics are the politics of Jubilee. His politics are the politics of Jubilee. That he proclaims that your spiritual debts are immediately pardoned in the blink of an eye. And therefore also, all social and economic debts and structures of power are immediately reset in the blink of an eye. So he, he goes to the poor, he goes to the prisoners, he goes to the blind, he goes to the oppressed, and he announces instant freedom. And that's why when you study how Christianity spreads, it always starts with the most marginalized in society because this is the message of Jesus. This is the kingdom of God. It all starts over in the blink of an eye through him. We have love with God and we have fellowship with one another, forgiveness with one another. And not just spiritual forgiveness, but economic forgiveness, social forgiveness. It starts over. And the poor want a message like that. The rich and the privileged, they usually don't like that message at first. Why? Because they're benefiting from the game. And just so we're all clear, every single one of us in this room were the rich and the privileged. We would not necessarily like this message at first because we means we have to give back the land that we got over 50 years. And all the the stuff we'd acquired, it goes back into other people's hands after 50 years. That's the politics of Jesus. It's the politics of Jubilee. And he is not saying I have brought the year of Jubilee. He's saying I am the year of Jubilee. He's not saying I care about justice. He's saying I am God's justice. Jesus announces the instant cancellation of social and economic debts because he's the true high priest who will make the ultimate sacrifice that will allow our spiritual debts to be canceled. There is no Jubilee without Jesus and there is no Jesus without jubilee. And here's why this is important for our purposes. I'm going to put up a bar graph. I think that's a bar. Is that a bar graph? Oh, no. It's just the X, Y axis. That's what it is. That's right. Um, that makes sense. Sorry. i um, not thinking. X, Y axis. And I want you to imagine that on the Y axis is Jesus and on the X axis is jubilee or justice, whatever you want to think about it. And the church has tried, specifically the church in America, over the last hundred years, they've tried to understand the makeup between the two of these. How do we get these two to work together? But here's where I think it's gone wrong for the most part. Because Christians on the right, the political right, usually care about that y-axis. They care about the relationship with God. If we get this right, the kingdom will come. So we focus on worship and prayer meetings, but that doesn't seem to change how we spend our money or it doesn't view criminal justice in any certain way. And it doesn't really answer why does poverty seem so racialized, which is why prophets on the right are sort of strike us as privileged hypocrites because they answer the why Jesus, but not the how. So it feels self-indulgent and sedentary. But Christians on the left are more on that X axis. And they care about jubilee, but Jesus is an afterthought. For them, justice is the main thing. Even if it's just public justice that doesn't have a say into my private life, which is why our prophets are bitter because they call us to improve the world, but they don't call us to improve ourselves. They don't call us to pray or repent or worship Jesus. They answer the how, but they don't give us the why, the ground source that allows us, to fuels us to step into it. Or as Hauerwas says, Jesus is relegated to being a motivator to encourage Christians to get involved in struggles for justice. For what really matters is not Jesus, but justice. But the politics of Jesus are the politics of Jubilee. God enacts his new kingdom of Jubilee through Jesus. Our spiritual debts are canceled with God. The game is reset. Now we get to announce the subsequent economic and social canceling of debts, the resetting, of structures of power. You want justice? It comes through Jesus. The love of Jesus is crucial for us to understand what a world completely made right looks like because it begins with that personal relationship with God. You want Jesus? You can't have him without justice because Jubilee is the kingdom that he announces. And today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We've waited long enough. We gotta have both up and to the right. That's what Jesus, Jesus is Jubilee and the Jubilee comes through Jesus. That's what the politics of Jesus are all about. I want to invite the band back up. I want to end with this story. I'm grateful to Lisa Sharon Harper who pointed this out. Um, During the Second Great Awakening, if you're unfamiliar with the Second Great Awakening, it was a period in America's history in the 1800s where pastors, uh, uh, evangelists would travel America and they'd preach the gospel and many people became followers of Jesus. And one of those, those preachers was a guy named Charles Finney. And Charles Finney invented something called the altar call. Anyone know what an altar call is? Don't worry, I'm not gonna make you do it, all right? Um, an altar call is, is when you preach this sermon, you would preach this message of, of God's love and forgiveness of you and then he'd invite people if they wanted to receive this message to step into it, to come forward to the altar. And we do something like this. We, we sometimes, I'll ask you to raise your hand or put your hands in the air and it's important, why? Because it bridges that public and private thing. It doesn't matter necessarily just what's in private, it needs to manifest itself into how, uh, what's public, how we live, how we step into and live into our bodies. But here's what's so fascinating about the altar call and something I learned about it. Um, Finney would invite people forward to receive Jesus' love. Nothing, nothing you can do, nothing that has been done will keep you away from the love of God. Your spiritual debts are canceled in the blink of an eye. And by coming forward, the people were signaling that they are aligning themselves with the kingdom of God. They are stepping into relationship. But as I grew up, when altar calls happened, that's where it stopped. But when they were first invented by Charles Finney, that's not the case, because as as uh, Dr. Harper tells us, these people who would come forward to receive God's love for them, they would open their eyes. And she writes, when they wiped away their tears and opened their eyes, Finney thrust a pen into their hands and pointed them to the sign-up sheets for the abolitionist movement. So basically, Finney's saying, you're coming forward, you're receiving the love of God through Jesus, and then you open your eyes, and you're emancipating any people you own as slaves and joining this abolitionist movement. To receive Jesus is to participate in the jubilee. And you can't participate in the jubilee without fundamentally first that love that comes through Jesus. Both go together. Jesus is jubilee and the jubilee is found in him. And we're going to spend the next couple weeks talking about what that means and what that looks like. But at the end of each sermon, of each message, I'm going to invite us as a community to do three things. I'm going to invite us at the end of each message in the series to consider Jesus' jubilee, both personally, or I should say personally, socially, in our relationships, and structurally. Because you can't have one without any of the others. It starts small and it works all the way out. You want a world made right? Get on your knees and pray with me. Lift your voice and sing with me. And then pick up your pen and let's get to work. Your money will be called into account. Your sex will be called into account. Your time will be called into account. Your history will be called into account. It will all be called into account because, friends, every part of us has been called into account with Jesus. We have been forgiven, we have been set free spiritually. We are his. As we read in First Corinthians, we have been bought with the price. We are stepping into a grand adventure, a restoration of the kingdom. We are resetting the structures of power. We're announcing the jubilee that has come in him. It'll be painful, but I promise you the world that is coming will be spectacular. And there's no other place and there's no other adventure I want to be a part of. His grace sustains us. Us learning to love one another sustains us. There will be resistance, but it'll be spectacular. And today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what are the invitations today then? Personally, where are you in your relationship with God? What do you think about him? What do you think about Jesus? The invitation is to receive God's love for you. There is nothing that has been done in your life and nothing that you can do, nothing that can hold you back from God's love for you through Jesus. Receive that today. Open up your hands. Give it a shot. Try and say, Lord, I want to learn, or maybe you're not even sure you can call him Lord yet. Say, Jesus, I want to learn what it looks like to follow you, to love you, to receive your love, because that is first socially, how it affects relationships, I want to invite you to this incredible organization called Safe Families for Children. And they're a wonderful organization. At the short, uh, the, the basis what they do, they're kind of like internet dating. You know, that's what it is. They connect us, they connect people with friends in Brooklyn who are experiencing some level of crisis. And who of us doesn't have crisis in our lives? Who of us so we get to be partnered, develop friendships with people in Brooklyn, support, love, and then be loved by them. It's an incredible organization and what I love most about it is it sort of allows you to give what you have. So if you're like, hey, I have resources, but I don't have time, they can use that. If you're Like I have time, but I don't have resources, they can use that. And this is something that our justice team is really wanting to focus on this year right now. We have 18 people part of Hope Brooklyn who are are part of Safe Families for Children. We want that to be 50 by the end of this series. So my challenge for you, after we sing and worship, there are gonna be some sign-up sheets at the What's Next table. Take your pen and just give your name and email to learn more, to learn more about this organization. It's wonderful. Anna and I do it, and we've already made such a tremendous friendship with an amazing, amazing family who are growing to love so much. So that's going to be our social invitation each week. And then structurally, become aware of the sin of Jeroboam in the church. Where does the church use Jesus as a means to another political end? On the right or the left? Which side do you fall on? You more on the right, thinking the kingdom structures will come simply through prayer? Are you on the left, thinking that Jesus is a model for justice, but it doesn't come through him? What does it look like for the church, for us, to embody fully the politics of Jesus' jubilee? Let's get the word. Pray with me. Lord, we know. God, I know that the essence of your story, the energy that pulses through everything is love. And love is strong, your love is strong and powerful and jealous and demanding, and it transforms us. It does not leave us where we are. It transforms us into a new creation. And there are parts of us that that need to to go. There are parts of us that need to, um, to stop hiding and to allow you to love us. And we know that out of that first love, receiving your love, we are empowered to love others. But I confess, Lord, that often we have forgotten the fullness of your kingdom. We've forgotten, Jesus, that your ministry, your politics is of jubilee. So it's not just spiritual debts that are canceled. It's economic, it's social, it's political. Structures of power are reset. We challenge any structure that allows for some to live in plenty and others to barely get by. We challenge that. We will work toward that for that is what the jubilee is about. We challenge structures of power that favor some and disfavor other. We challenge the ways and we repent of the ways that we have not cared enough about it, that we have not stepped fully into this jubilee because we know it means we're gonna lose something in the process. But we also know that you have the words of life and we wanna follow you. So Lord, hope Brooklyn is your church. Use us in this city to announce your jubilee kingdom because it is good news to everyone. We have found life in you. We love you, Lord. Teach us to love you better, to receive your love. Amen. Thanks again for tuning into this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.